All right, well, welcome back to our study on the law of God. We're in week four of six to eight, somewhere in there, we'll see. We kind of finished uh, our first part of this series, looking at specific passages, the character and purpose of the law, the problem of legalism, and some ethical dilemmas that come up. Today, we're going to start a three-week uh, systematic look a bit more, a, a, quite a change in focus. And we talk about this, but I want to talk a little bit about why we change the types of teaching we do. When Tim preaches, typically what you have is an exegesis. He goes to a passage and come, you know, teaches us from the passage. Obviously, he'll make connections to other places in Scripture and to broader themes, but he's, his platform is really a single text. And that's good because it kind of keeps you from skipping things and, and developing your own hobby horses. You have to kind of deal with what God presents to you that week. But another way of looking at the scriptures that's important is called biblical theology. And that's typically taking bigger chunks of scripture. Maybe you're looking at how does John use the concept of light and dark in his gospel or in all of his writings, or maybe a narrower, how does Paul deal with Israel in Romans 9 to 11? It's, it's still using the Bible as a basis, but, but kind of jumping around a little bit, but somewhat focused. When we come to systematic theology, that's like the Westminster Confession where it's, it's usually a, some kind of a subject or a topic. And so you, you kind of have this, this rubric and you're running around scriptures to find the kind of the proof text. Well, hopefully you start with the scriptures, right? So wherever the Bible talks about baptism or whatever, and you're kind of bringing those together and trying to form a system, an understanding. And so, and that's important because that's kind of how our brains think and that's how we typically talk. If someone comes up to you and says, how might I be saved? Now, if you have 30 seconds, you might just quote scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. But if you have a little bit of time, your gospel presentation is probably going to be somewhat systematic, right? You're going to talk about what Jesus did and what it was all about. It's not going to just be quoting. And that's important because we believe the Bible is, has one divine author, that it all comes together. And so, if, you, if you're well-grounded and you understand salvation by justification, by faith alone, and then you come to 1 Timothy 2 and he says, women will be saved through childbearing, you don't go off the rails, right? You don't just jettison everything you understand in the scripture because of this one challenging text. So having a good systematic theology is helpful to interpret individual texts. And so hopefully you see that as a good Bible student, you need all of these. You need all sorts of things. And so we, obviously the sermon is usually exegetical and we try to fill in in Sunday school and hopefully in your other Bible study with these other types. And so some people like the really direct application of the things we did last week, um, and that's good. But sometimes you just need a good steady diet over the weeks and months. You know, you need your, your meat and vegetables. You can't always have dessert. And so you just kind of need to build your basis. And so for those who aren't well-grounded in systematic theology, please hang with me. There's probably a, be a couple points here where I'm, I'm going really fast and I lose you a little bit, but I'll try to bring it back to the, to the essentials. And obviously, please, today we won't have a lot of time for discussion. We'll kind of flesh out my rhetorical questions in the next two weeks. Uh, but sometimes in class we can ask or just ask me afterwards and I'll try to clarify the next week. So one way we can often talk about theology and these broader themes is on a spectrum of continuity and discontinuity. On your handout, I apologize, somewhere between my computer, phone, and printer, it messes up the formatting, so the, 
it should be two-sided, but the back part kind of started on the first page and the columns got out of whack. But um, so, so basically, as we go from the old to the new, the oftentimes we ask the question, what has changed or what has remained the same? And obviously, if the New Testament speaks, we know to follow that. The question comes in is where the New Testament is not explicit, where, where the New Testament is silent, what do we assume about what was in the old and comes to the new? You can kind of think about this side of the board, the left side, as, as like what we have, a, a constitutional democracy. So we just had a change in our president, right, in our administration, but undergrounding all that, whoever sits in the White House and wh whoever he or she appoints Ultimately, we have a constitution. We have, we have a status, at least in theory, that stays the same, right? And so whatever can change, and there might be quite big relative changes, if you like it or don't, and yet we kind of have a stable system, right? There's a system that even the president bows to. Well, in other countries, maybe a true monarchy, where you just have a king who rules, or a, a dictatorship, when that person dies and goes to the next person, you don't know what you're gonna get, right? That's very discontinuous. It really depends on that person. And so, same thing when we look at the covenants and the, the progress of covenantal history, depending on your view of that depends on how much we would expect to necessarily change. For instance, when the Bible and the Old Testament talks about certain prophecies, do you take those prophecies at literal face value? That would be continuous. Or do, you, do we recognize some un, unforeseen eschatological shift at how we would interpret it? That would be discontinuous. Something has changed. So the coming of Jesus has changed things. We would all say that. The question along the spectrum, and it's, it is a spectrum, there's not like nice little categories, Christians disagree. Good Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians disagree on these things. Typically, it falls into three areas, according to this continuity and discontinuity book. Uh, it would be your, the covenants of God, the kingdom of God, and the people of God. So covenants of God, often if a Presbyterian and Baptist are talking about baptism, often the discussion comes to, well, what do you believe about the continuity of the covenant sign of circumcision, right? And so sometimes that kind of shifts where somebody falls on that issue. The kingdom of God would include, include his rule and his law. So that's what we're going to study in this series. And then, of course, the people of God, the relationship of church and Israel, and these three categories don't always come together, as we're going to see. They, they obviously influence each other. What laws you believe we still follow today from the Old Testament is affected by what you believe about the continuity of the covenants. But it, it's not one for one. Let me just say that right. So I might as well say it now. So you're, when, I, when I draw this out for the law of God, you're going to see me put dispensationalists, people who make a sharp contrast between Israel and the church, I'm going to be on the right side of the board, discontinuous. But based on what I just said about prophecy, they would be on the left side. So when, when it comes to physical Israel, uh, dispensations would be very continuous. They think those prophecies in the Old Testament are still going to be fulfilled, albeit in a future millennial kingdom, but it's, it's going to be just like it says. No nuance, no, no shift, no change. But the discontinuous part of their theology is the church, the Gentile church, is a whole new entity and so they kind of don't, that, those people don't really even need to look at the Old Testament or maybe not even the Gospels if, at the very extremes. And so 
It depends on what subject you're talking about. We'll explain that a little more. So when we talk about the law, so when we, we're just going to use the spectrum now for the law. What does God command New Testament believers today when you're dealing with Old Testament commands? So if you're on the continuous side, you're basically saying that the form or the shape of the law has changed, but not the being or the essence of the law. So there, there's, there is a change. We're not all the way to the left, but base, there's basic continuity with some kind of change, some kind of asterisks or nuance, whereas people on this side of the board are going to say, no, the, the very essence of what God expects from his people has changed. It's all new. And so we're kind of really just going to focus on the New Testament. And so this side would say, we assume continuity unless the New Testament explicitly changes it or abrogates it. Where the, on the right side of the board, they're going to assume that nothing comes over until I see it in the New Testament. And so what, when you get to one of the keys in the hermeneutics, how you interpret here, is going to be where do you go to find this change? Because we all probably admit there's some kind of a spectrum, there's some kind of a nuance involved, it's not clear. So the key is where do you go? Where's the key to unlock that? And that's where Christians will disagree. How much is preserved somehow from the old, but how much is transformed and reshaped by the coming of Jesus? What has he changed? And at the very extremes, we always want to avoid extremes, right? So you always put yourself in the middle so you feel really balanced and all your opponents can, can look extreme, right? So that's what we're going to do today. At the very extremes, you have like an extreme Zionist movement that, you know, people that keep the dietary laws, they even have like Jewish cultural music in their worship service, and there's so much focus on the Old Testament, it's almost like they don't need the New Testament. It doesn't do much for them. It helps expound the Old Testament is all it does for them. And then you have people on the other side that the church is so new, the Old Testament is not for you, you almost don't need the Old Testament, right? Hopefully we see that we're probably going to be somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. And there's verses that go around. There always are. Otherwise, these debates wouldn't rage on. So there's lots of passages that would lean to continuity. Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on, on the contrary, we uphold the law, the Mosaic law. Paul says the coming of faith in Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the gospel does not destroy the law. In fact, it upholds the law. That sounds continuous. On the other hand, same author, in Galatians 3, Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Same guy, talking about faith and the law. Now he says Christ has come. We don't need this law anymore. That sounds very discontinuous. So there's verses to go around, and we're going to get into a lot more of those in the next two weeks. I just kind of want to introduce the spectrum today and, and challenge you a bit. So we, we, as a church, hold to the Westminster Confession, in our teaching. You don't have to believe every jot and tittle of this to be a Christian, to even be a good Christian. Uh, even the confession itself wouldn't hold itself up as the ultimate rule of faith in life, right? It's the scriptures. We're sola scriptura. And so, and it's good because it, it gives us unity. We don't have to fight the same issues every week, right? It, it, it lets us come together um, as a people of God. But it's always good to challenge your system, right? It's, it, this is not the Bible. 
And so let your system be challenged. It should sharpen you, refine you, run back to the scriptures. Maybe you'll change your position. That's okay. Or maybe you'll just understand better. Oh yeah, I'm more solidified or I know how to answer this critique. Much like Mark taught once in the end times views, I'm going to kind of, over the next three weeks, present three views on this subject. And I'm going to let each position kind of speak for itself. And I do want to challenge you. That would be good. There are also some mixed passages. So now we have the, the continuous and discontinuous in the same passage to make it even harder. Matthew 5 is a huge one. We'll look at that in two weeks. We looked at it last April when I went through the Sermon on the Mount. So at one point, Jesus says, not a jot or tittle will pass away from the law. It's going to stay until heaven and earth disappear. You're going to have the law. And then he goes on to give six examples of, you've heard this, but I'm going to tell you this, right? Jesus, what are you doing? 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself under law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So Paul says, I'm not under the law. And he says, I'm not outside the law. 1 John 2, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. That would be discontinuous. It's not a new commandment, but a commandment that you've already hold. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. <laughs> if this wasn't a computer, I could throw it. it, it this, this stuff is hard. If you think this is black and white, it's very simple, slam, slam dunk. I don't think you've studied enough. That's my honest opinion. These are challenging things. There's reasons Christians disagree on these things. So it ought to drive us to the scripture, and it also ought to produce a bit of humility in these things as well. You know, we already are fallible creatures as we exegete and, and go to a single passage. Just think as we put this passage and this passage and this passage together, our logic isn't perfect. Somewhere in your thinking, in your structure, in your system, you have errors. We should admit that. We do the best we can, right? We bow before God, we pray for wisdom and guidance, and, and we move on. Okay, so let's start putting some flesh on these bones. So right in the middle, I'm going to put the PCA position, the Westminster Confession of Faith, because we're always in the middle. We're always right. Everybody's extreme. Um, and so when it comes to the law, you'd say the Ten Commandments are continued today. It makes it easier. So Ten Commandments is kind of our basic continuity. Uh, and then the other commandments continue in some sense, but not like the Ten Commandments. That's what we call the moral law. It abides for all time, for all people, because it ties itself to the very character of God as creator. If you go to the right of this, so more discontinuous, eventually you'll, ha you'll have people, at some point the Sabbath falls off. People would say, well, there's nine commandments, but not the Sabbath, because um, there's no explicit talking of that like the other nine. Uh, and then at some point you'll have no Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant's abrogated, therefore the Ten Commandments are abrogated. So again, we look to the New Testament. Um, we don't look to the Ten Commandments. We look to the New to know what are the... Um, eventually you get, into, you get into people who get kind of antinomium and just anti-law in general. You know, we don't need anything but the law of Christ. And so by that, they think, oh, we just, we turn to Christ and the apostles for our law. We don't, we don't, again, you're getting more, less and less continuous, less and less concerned with what the Old Testament says. 
if you come to the left, so from our position, these people would be discontinuous, like they don't have enough continuity in their thinking. Well, now let's look the other way because this is all relative. We believe in a Sunday Sabbath, right? Well, there are people who would say, wait a minute, moral law of God, how do you change that? It's a Saturday Sabbath, just like it always was, right? They would be more continuous at that point. They don't see the eschatological shift. And I put on your sheet, I think, I got this from Life Salvador. He calls them the Saturdarians. So that's why I put on there, because it fit. Um, and then you're going to have, and we'll describe some of the, we'll explain some of these terms of it, the civil law. So you have theonomists. We'll talk about that in two weeks. So they would, they would take more of what's in the Mosaic law and, and less change from that in, instituted today. As individuals, as a society, they say, no, that God is wise. Who could be wiser than God? If this was a righteous law, it's still a righteous law, and we have to advocate for that in the U.S. or in the U.K. And then, of course, at some point, you have people who do the dietary laws, and I don't know if there's anyone who still advocates sacrifices today, but in the millennial kingdom, these guys would. So we're all over the place. But, but notice, just offhand, it's, it's a spectrum. If, if we're going to look at the guy who doesn't believe in a Sabbath and say, dude, get with the program, Ten Commandments, that same argument's going to be used by these guys against us. Ten Commandments, get with the program. Who are you to change the day, right? It's also not a linear line on all issues. I've already talked about the dispensations, how it's different. My background, not that you should care, has been a lot more the tension over here. I've wrestled with the tension from this side, um, but I, I've never been even close to um, challenged or um, interested in theonomy, because I'm on the other side. I'm on the discontinuous side. Well, now I got Baptist podcasts I listen to who are Baptist theonomists. So this stuff doesn't always go in a straight line. People kind of are all over the place, and I actually have some interest in studying that stuff now. So just for the sake, there is a spectrum, for the sake of some, some kind of focus, I'm kind of kind of digitize it into three groups, right? Um, so today's, we'll, we'll call our position. Uh, next week, probably the, the central part of that group is something called New Covenant Theology, so I'll explain that next week, where they, they kind of really harp on the law of Christ. Uh, and then the third week, we'll kind of talk about theonomy. Those will be kind of the three groups. And, and I'm going to contain myself to people who are not just Christians, but Calvinists. Yes, if you go right of the PCA, you don't become a Tim LaHaye dispensationalist right away. There's a few grades to get there. I'll introduce some of them next week. Okay, so what is our position? So if you go to chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, basically, and I'll, I'll actually put it in along the spectrum. So you kind of have moral. That's very continuous. A little less continuous would be the civil or the judicial laws. And then you have the ceremonial, which would be even more, less continuous, more discontinuous. So when we say moral law, we're, we're talking about law that abides today. It's moral in its very essence. It, it directly reflects the character of God as creator. Therefore, if you're a believer or an unbeliever, a Jew or a Gentile, if you lived in the first century or the last century, these laws apply to you. And God expects you to follow, and they're moral. It doesn't matter what form or shape 
Um, there might be forms or shapes that they take, but they're a moral law. So, and in our, in our church, we, uh, I don't know if equate's the right word, but we would say, summarize might be the best word, the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God. So any kind of moral law that you might dream up, we would somehow make a diagram back to the Ten Commandments and continue to hold that up as our rule of what a Christian, how a Christian ought to live. Oops, I lost my spot. Uh, civil or judicial laws in chapter 19 there were really tied to the political nation of Israel. And so, you know, stoning homosexuals or all sorts. Think of all, all the crimes and other sins. So they're, they're tied to Israel as a political entity. And because that political entity no longer exists in our position, that's our covenantal view, our view of the people of God, therefore, those laws no longer exist. Right? It wouldn't make sense. The, the church is not a political state. We believe in that, not to necessarily use our constitutional language, separation of church and state, but maybe. But we, we see a difference there, a distinction. And so you could, the honest will argue that those should now be in, involved in a, the new political states, like the, America, but at least when it comes to the church, it's not the church's role to execute people. Yet, we would find some kind of moral principles, the general equity of the law. Um, so we would, we would find some morality in there. For instance, we no longer would execute someone for adultery, but we would excommunicate them from the fellowship. We would find that basis for that, that separation there in the civil law. And yet, we're not executing it as a political entity, if that makes sense. And so the Westminster Confession says, civil laws, judicial laws, have expired with the state of Israel. A couple of the common ones that are brought up, Deuteronomy 25, you should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul talks about this in two places, about the wages of those who labor in the gospel. They have to make their living by the gospel. In fact, Paul says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Did God give this command about oxen because it had to do with oxen? No, there was something broader and deeper involved that in the first, in the old covenant, it fleshed its way out in that, but there was something to learn from that. Deuteronomy 22, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house. So we don't think today we're going to go inspect all your homes and literally look for a parapet on the on roof, but it would be a general you ought to care for those who live with you and your guests. You perhaps consider a fence around your pool, right? You care about safety. There's a moral principle embedded there. And we would not, for sure, to bring over any of the criminal sanctions from the Mosaic Covenant in our position. Ceremonial laws, similar to civil in the sense that we find them abrogated, and yet we can find some moral principles in them. Westminster says several typical ordinances, they're, they're types, partly of worship prefiguring Christ, partly of diverse instructions of moral duties. So not only, so we're talking about temple worship, sacrifices, things that Jesus accomplished, right? All that prefigured Christ. And, and the, the real, the true form of these realities has come, the, the true sacrifice has come. Not only is it inappropriate, to continue the other sacrifices, it would be sacrilegious to continue the sacrifices. Maybe, maybe in the civil realm, you could say, well, you're being a little, you know, fundamentalist with how you're applying that Old Testament passage, but no, no big deal. Um, 
but on, on, when it comes to ceremonial, that, that's a bit of a bigger deal. Like, no, do you understand that Jesus is the final sacrifice? That would be our concern if we saw Tim up here trying to sacrifice a goat or something. It, it doesn't, and he could claim to be being biblical, right? It's right here, it's spelled out. And yet there's still some moral duty. As, I, I don't think I realized this before the last few months that you look at the moral part of ceremonial laws as well. For instance, Jews were supposed to separate themselves, ceremonial, from Gentiles. Even in some of the clothing laws, right, certain fibers and foods, they're supposed to be a holy and a separate people. Well, the New Testament takes that concept the same, but it no longer applies to physical things like what you eat or drink or washings, regulations for the body. Now applies to, you, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so you, you are holy and you separate yourself from unrighteousness and from wickedness. You even watched what company you're in because they might bring you down. That's a moral aspect of a ceremonial law that is taught in the New Testament. So it's a little confusing me, the language there. It says that the ceremonial laws are abrogated, and yet there are moral duties there. But the assembly didn't ask my opinion on their language. But I think the main point is, is obvious. Um, okay, so moral, civil, or judicial and ceremony. That's kind of, when we go to the Mosaic law, we kind of see those different types of law there, or a threefold nature, sometimes called tripartite, threefold nature of the law. And so when you're, if you're reading Moses, then you would say, all right, which type of law is this? So I know if I'm supposed to follow it or not, or how I might find some underlying moral principle to apply. Another way of looking at things that I don't hear around here as much, in other circles I do, is they talk about natural law versus positive law. In that sense, natural law would be very similar to moral law. It's law by its very nature because of the character of God. Positive law would be something that God institutes for some covenantal purpose. He didn't have to, but he has a purpose as authority. He's, it's not arbitrary because he has a purpose. Like, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was nothing moral in that other than to establish his authority and let them fall. Um, with a natural law, or sorry, a positive law, it could be something that's temporary, like civil and ceremonial, and then stops, or it could be something that starts at some point in history and continues. So an example of that might be incest. So we might think of incest between siblings as a moral wickedness, and yet, if we started with two parents who had children who must then marry and produce children, it would not have been possible to say, do not have incest at that point, right? So at least on this view, then incest would have been completely moral and righteous at some point in history. But at least then by the, by the old covenant, by the Mosaic covenant, it becomes a, a posited abiding law, right? So maybe it had to start. And so from our standpoint, it almost doesn't matter if something ever wasn't moral or if it was. The question is, is it moral for us today? People get in arguments about, was it actually sinful to have two or three wives in the Old Testament? Christians disagree on that. It's kind of a moot point because everybody agrees today it would be, right? So sometimes you can, I'm not saying it's a waste of time on those topics, but keep it in proportion. All right, so here's my rhetorical challenges to you. Maybe we'll have time for discussion, maybe not. This is what I want you to be thinking about. I'd love for you to take this as a homework assignment. These kind of things are going to affect what I say in the next two weeks. So today we've kind of talked about this. I'm now about to challenge this. Next week we're going to talk more about here. 
people who don't see as much continuity, and then the third week we'll get to the theonomous position. So here's my challenge to you. How would you defend that threefold nature of the law? How would you defend that there are moral, civil, and ceremonial? Do you know if someone came up to you right now and said, what was Keith talking about? Because the Bible doesn't say it explicitly. It doesn't say there are moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. It doesn't, and, and more importantly perhaps, is it doesn't say which ones are in which category. That's the challenge. So if you believe in this threefold nature, where are you going to go with markers and highlighters and try to separate what's what and make sense of it? And then to make it even harder, doesn't it seem like a bit of an arbitrary standard? The, whatever the general equity of the law requires. Like, how, who's to decide what was required to be a moral principle from the civil law? Like, it just sounds a little arbitrary, right? So how would you go about defending, defending these categories, defining what falls in them, and then furthermore, defining what is that moral principle? For instance, in Matthew 5, talked about this last year, when he, when he says, not a jot or till of the law will pass away until heaven and earth have passed away, many people, many people I highly respect, say he's talking about the moral law. I, for one, don't see, I don't know how you defend that. Not explicitly, anyway. Now, we all believe in nuance when it comes to these things, and so maybe that is the correct nuanced position, but where, if you agree or disagree with me or Lloyd-Jones on that topic, I would never want to fight Lloyd-Jones on that, but I am. The, here's, here's my real challenge to you. What I, what I care about is be careful about building systematic language, which we need to do. I'm not against new words like Trinity or whatever that aren't in the Bible. That's not a problem. But be careful about importing that new systematic language back into the text. Even things like justification and sanctification, the way we talk about them systematically is not the way the Bible always uses those terms. Sometimes sanctified means justified. Sometimes justified doesn't mean justification by faith. It usually means those things, which is kind of why I think we've adopted them systematically. So you just have to be careful. It would be maybe a little bit like um, when you see the word household. You can't just come to your Western 21st century American understanding what household means. 2.4 kids, right? You, that would be importing your culture into language. You need to go back and say, well, what would the writer have meant by household? These which could be dozens of people, right? Servants and all sorts of things. And so similarly, we just need to be careful. Watch yourself about how you're using language. And, and that's where the biblical theology and the exegesis is important and going to resources that can teach you. We don't live in the first century, right? We don't live in the second century B.C., we don't know exactly what maybe they would have meant by certain language. So you need to be a Bible student and understand these things. How would you defend that the Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law? I got a list of passages here. I'm going to hold them. They're my teacher's notes. Um, wh where would you go to say, well, it appears that the New Testament, when it's speaking about abiding law to Gentile churches, um, Sears seems to quote from the Ten Commandments a lot. Maybe have some of those examples uh, in your arsenal. Here's another big one. What about the two greatest commandments? Love God and love neighbor. Clearly those are abiding, right? Those are the greatest commandments. It, some people would say the Ten Commandments are the summary of all moral law. Some people would say 
The two greatest commandments are the summary of the moral law. It'd be hard to recognize. So how do those two relate? Love neighbor is not in the Ten Commandments. So if the Ten Commandments are a moral law, what, what is Leviticus 19 doing over there with love your neighbor? How, if, and if one of those is a summary of the other, which one? And if it's a summary, if, if, the ten, if the two greatest commandments, love God, love neighbor, summarize the Ten Commandments, there's some obvious logic there, right? First four commandments have to do with God, the last six have to do with neighbor. Why do I need the Ten Commandments? Why don't I just have the summary? Hey, you've got the Holy Spirit now, brother. You've got the two greatest commandments. Go for it. Go apply the Holy Spirit and love your God, love your neighbor. I don't need a list of rules, right? I'm no longer under a guardian, under a tutor. I'm not a child anymore, like a slave. I'm grown up. The fullness of time has come. I don't need a bunch of letter of the law. I just need to follow the Spirit. Because that's where the right side of the board comes from in their thinking. How would you classify the following commandments? Are they moral, civil, or ceremony? If you had a little spreadsheet, where would you tick these? Incest bestiality. Are those moral laws or those civil laws? The Bible, there's some reference to incest in the, in the New, some specific types. Nothing to bestiality. It's not in the Ten Commandments. A, few, a couple years ago we talked about, um, I don't even know what the subject was, probably sex. There's, there's now sex robots. Is that adultery, to have sex with a robot? <laughs> I mean, this stuff is coming. It makes you squirm, but it's there. Dietary laws, where do those fall? Are those ceremonial? Um, we see goodness, people draw gentle wisdom from those things. It's circumcision, where does circumcision fall? And, what, and depending on how you categorize that, what does that have to do with baptism? Does that affect baptism? Talk about that next week. Fasting, fasting seems maybe a little more along the silver ceremonial. Clearly, Matthew, uh, Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you fast. Is he only talking to the Jews there? Because that's a Jewish law? Or is he talking to believers? How do you defend that from the Ten Commandments? Fasting. Tithing. There's one we probably have disagreement in here. Tithing's not a Ten Commandment. Some people would say, that's your standard. Are you tithing? Like, literal 10%. How do you measure the 10%? Do you measure it the way the Jews did, when they actually ended up giving 33% because of that? According to John MacArthur, I never fact-checked him on that. So, but, or is, or, or are you happy to say, well, there's a principle of giving cheerfully, and that's all I need to do, okay? Just have a biblical basis for your decision, right? Don't, don't just do what's convenient. Ugh, things are tight this month, I don't believe in tithing anymore. Oh, the Sabbath. I could do three weeks on the Sabbath. It's good that I don't. If the weekly Sabbath is a moral law, how can we change the day of the week? If that is tied to the very character of God, go back and look at why the Ten Commandments were given. Oh, wait, the Ten Commandments are different in their two givings. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 don't match. How did that happen? How did the unchanging moral law of God change in just a few chapters? I could have a long conversation on those. The Sabbath is the, is the biggest change. What's his reason in Exodus? because I've created the world in six days. On the seventh I rest. The seventh day of creation is holy. That's what the Saturnarians would say. How, dare, how can you change a creation ordinance? 
the very reason it's given. Then you get to Deuteronomy 5, and the reason is completely different. It's because I brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. Whoa, now that sounds like a Jewish law. Make it worse. Colossians 2, Romans 14, Galatians 4. Paul seems to indicate there's no more holy days, no more special days. In fact, the Sabbath in Colossians 2, he says the Sabbath is type of the forms and shadows that are gone. So how would you defend that? It's important stuff. And my biggest thing is how, do you, how in the end, what is your key? What is your key to unlock this and to try to help find some answers? That's what I really want you to wrestle with. So have some humility, study the passages, and find that key. And so in the next two weeks, we'll try to get into some of the other camp's answers. Our answer is, has been Ten Commandments, right? And then we have, in my mind, a little bit of a, a vague moral principles within these others. Um, so we'll kind of wrestle with their key. So we don't have a mic, so I'll keep your comment or question short, and I will repeat it. Um, any questions for now? If you want a specific answer to some of these, I'm probably going to get to a lot of it in the next two weeks. If you want to make sure I get to it, please text or email me this week, and I'll make sure I answer your specific. Oh, we do have a mic. Does that mean you have a question? or? Well, we do have a mic. While this, have I totally lost anyone? Is there just a point of clarification that I, I may have misspoke or you're totally lost, that I can clear up something quickly? If you're totally lost, I probably need a longer conversation. So I would need a longer conversation if you're totally lost. All right, okay, I'll come make you dinner. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, and I, if you don't have a background in this stuff, this was a little too fast. I, I understand. Go ahead. So are you going to talk about what we usually say are the three uses of the law? No. Because to me, that has import in what drives us to Christ. I'm not hearing it. It has import in what drives us to Christ. So we, I did deal with that in the first two weeks, um, what you do with the law. This series is more about defining what that law is, not, not how it's then used. Do you see, obviously that subject is important, does that subject help us define which laws we follow? No, no yeah, I, see, I, yeah. I see, I see, but yeah. um, we can never rest in our obedience to the law, obviously, because it has driven us to Christ. So oftentimes we're sinning, and we don't even know we're sinning. You know, I mean, we are... absolutely so totally depraved as they would say but yeah i you bring up a good point i would not i purposely didn't i this was my plan was to start with this and as i studied i was concerned with things like that like this is not the most important subject on law more important were the first three weeks like what is your relationship to god as an authority giver in general what do you do with that do you you can focus on the law all day and it doesn't bring you any closer to christ right you you could be more theologically correct than your charismatic brother and he could be a lot closer to Christ in the way his attitudes towards Christ, right? So don't think that this solves your sin problem at all, and which is one reason I started the other series. In the back. Yeah, I thought your, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, really does spell it out, but it's pretty cut and dry for me. If you go back to Deuteronomy, 
28, where it talks on that God really does set the stage for these laws, the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and then every, the other laws are, are full of the moral principles. But I think it sets the stage for the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. It's pretty simple to me, black and white. The blessings well, are obvious, especially for the Israelites, the Jews, that they're, um, they'll be set aside as a holy people. Now, the curses, there's more curses than blessings. Like, you know, the rain's going to be powder and your animals are going to die and there's going to be locusts. It's pretty cut and dry. But, you know, after a while, we cannot keep any law. That's why Jesus came. So would you say if you were disobedient today, you would expect locusts? I can't. I I believe in Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Okay, but that's not what Deuteronomy 28 says. My only point is, you say black and white, a lot of Christians disagree on that, like exactly how that would apply. I, th- I think you're right. The essence, the most important things are cut and dry. We call that the perspicuity of the scriptures. Right, but everything that we do is tainted with sin. So, yes. I mean, that's the bottom line, really. Yeah, I think one of the things that Moses was teaching, or God was teaching through Moses, was the law, the authority of God is so invasive, it's so detailed, we could never keep it, right? And even then, wasn't the Mosaic Law wouldn't be far enough. <laughs> like, the New Testament keeps coming at us to the very core of our being, the very thoughts and intents of our heart. Okay, what, one more comment or question. Sounds like I just shut down discussion with the way I answered that. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you. Help us to bow before you. Help our hearts to be overwhelmed with uh, our sin, our inability to keep your law. And may it drive us to Jesus. May we fall on our face. And the more we study the law, the more we appreciate grace. Thank you for sending us a perfect substitute who did keep the law and continues to intercede for us even now. Thank you that we stand in his righteousness and not our own. And yet, we pray that that would drive us to obedience, that would drive us to, to holiness, to, to show how thankful we are because we love you, not because we're trying to earn favor. So help us in this study to take your word seriously. We want to obey you. Perhaps we've not considered certain commandments. We haven't really given it a fair shake. Help us to study and become Bible students. Help us to grant a lot of charity and grace to those who might disagree when we see them diligently uh, studying the Word of God and and trying to come to conclusions. And and may we be iron sharpening iron in these discussions. And now, Father, as we leave this systematic study to, to the exegetical preaching of your Word, we pray that your Word would, would soak in us and it would produce fruit in ways that we can't even see. You would be doing things in the in the in our hearts that that we can't even feel at this point, but you're you're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We pray that we would love Jesus more because we worship together. It's in His name we pray. Amen.